Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Kimberly Zarekor on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Manufacturing a Socialist Modernity, Housing in Czechoslovakia, 1945 to 1960. When I first went to the Eastern Bloc many decades ago, I was amazed to find out that everyone lived in apartment buildings. Where I grew up, everyone lived in houses. But in Moscow, everyone lived in these huge cookie-cutter apartment blocks. And I wondered to myself, why is that? Well, there are a lot of answers to that question. Uh, One of them is architectural. And the architectural answer is the subject of Kimberly's wonderful book. She explains that the modernist style of architecture was intimately related to the socialist project even before World War II. That is, the architects themselves, in Czechoslovakia in this case, believed that these kinds of large apartment blocks were a kind of socialist architecture. And after the war, when the communists and socialists came to power throughout Eastern Europe, they were given the opportunity to put that theory or desire into practice. And that is what they did. Uh, The result was the panel house, as it's called, a prefab kind of apartment block that is transported to a site and then constructed. Over time, this vision of a socialist architecture built on the panel house was compromised in various ways and by various forces, socialist realism, economic constraints, politics, that kind of thing. But as Kimberly points out, when they were built, they were thought to be extraordinarily modern and actually quite nice. And even today, people think that many of them are quite nice in Czechoslovakia. You can see some of the unadulterated, sort of pure versions of the panel houses still today in the Czech Republic. I really enjoyed talking to Kimberly today, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Today, we are talking with Kimberly Zarekor about her terrific book, Manufacturing a Socialist Modernity, Housing in Czechoslovakia, 1945 to 1960. Those of you who regularly listen to this podcast may know that I am interested in architecture. Uh, The built environment is uh, obviously all around us. And I think many of us, at least for a long time, I didn't uh, pay much attention to it. I didn't pay much attention to it until I spent a lot of time overseas. And where I happened to spend a lot of time overseas, I'm in the United States now, by the way, uh, was in the Soviet Union. It was then called the Soviet Union. And I saw, I went to the Soviet Union half expecting that people lived in what I called houses. And I was sort of shocked to see that they did not, although they did call them houses. Um, They they were big apartment buildings is what we call them in the United States. Uh, And and this uh, really got my attention. It really really got my attention. And I became very interested in the kinds of big apartment buildings that they built, which is why, and I didn't really understand it, which is why when I saw Kimberly's book, I said, you know, I have to talk to this woman because she probably knows everything about these buildings. Um, if you've ever been to the Eastern Bloc or what used to be the Eastern Bloc, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or if you're in the United States and you happen to live in something we now call projects, that's not, not something I, I don't know if that's politically correct anymore or not, but the projects, uh, then you'll know exactly a little bit about the topic of 
um, Kimberly's excellent book. So, Kim, thank you for writing it. Thank you for being on the show. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, thanks. Well, um, I started off my academic career in art history, and I actually was just down the street from you at UMass Amherst. UMass Amherst, yay. Yeah, and I, I grew up in western Massachusetts, and I took a detour down to Georgia Tech for a little while, but I, I ended up doing my bachelor's in art history, and I had no idea that I was going to be a specialist on industrialized housing in Eastern Europe. I wrote my undergraduate uh, honors thesis on the Book of Kells, an Irish manuscript, yeah. and I spent a year at Trinity College in Dublin, hmm. and I thought for a while that I would be a practicing architect, and that was always my lifelong dream. So after my undergraduate, I went to Columbia University to do my master's of architecture and was training to be an architect and realized somewhere along the way that my real passion was in architectural history. And then I had to decide what I wanted to do. And when I was in Ireland as an exchange student, I had actually done a lot of traveling and I took two really long trips. One of them took me through Eastern Europe um, into Prague and Budapest. And uh, it was always a part of the world that I loved. And it was sort of in the back of my mind that someday it would be great to spend some time there. And so when I was transitioning from doing my Master's of Architecture at Columbia and thinking about a PhD topic, I decided um, to go in the direction of Czech architecture. And um, this happened in a very specific moment. I was part of a research group of students and a couple faculty from Columbia University, um, including uh, Barry Bergdahl, um, who at that time was a professor at Columbia University, and Terry Riley, who was the curator of architecture at MoMA in New York. And Barry is now the curator of architecture at MoMA. And we spent two weeks in Germany in the late 1990s uh, doing research about Mies van der Rohe. Mm -hmm. And Mies built a wonderful house in Brno in the Czech Republic. And it's called the Tugendhat House. And we made a detour out of Germany just to see this house. And so we were in Brno in the Czech Republic for a few days. And I basically fell in love with the place <laughs> and realized that uh, nobody was writing in English about Czech architecture. And Barry and Terry couldn't find any good research about the architecture there. And I made a kind of decision very quickly that I was going to abandon my what had been a project about Vienna uh, for my Ph.D., I hadn't started yet, but that was the proposal, and I was going to learn Czech, and I was going to write about Czech architecture. Wow. And so uh, I see Barry. I just saw him a few weeks ago, and I always thank him, even though it was a kind of uh, <laughs> unintentional introduction to the place. But uh, I've, I've been going back and forth to Czech Republic since then, since the late 90s, and it's a place I really love, and now that I know the language, it's a place that uh, I feel like you can learn so much more about the place when you really spend time and you mm -hmm. talk to people. And it's, it's really been a wonderful thing for me, yeah. uh, this other home somewhere else. Yeah, that's a terrific story. I was going to interrupt, but I didn't. I was going to say that I don't think anybody begins their studies by thinking I'm going to be a specialist in industrialized socialist <laughs> architecture. I, I just... I don't think anybody does that. So Well, I'm uh, hoping that now there I, I know that I've spawned a little cohort of PhD students working on this, particularly right. Czech Republic. So yeah. some of them now think that, but that's because right. the has really transformed recently. Right. So that 
segues very nicely or provides a segue to uh, my next question, and that is how you came to write this book. I mean, uh, architecture, there's a lot of it. Um, and even in Eastern Europe, there's a lot of it. Uh, but this particular kind of architecture, as you say, has been, uh, well, I was going to say neglected, but it really hasn't been neglected. It's simply been um, insulted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you came to choose this particular style of architecture and this particular moment, 1945 to 1960. The 1945, I get. The 1960, maybe you could talk a little bit yeah, about okay. that. Yeah. Okay. So there's a very specific, another very specific, uh, specific story to this, which is that when I started learning Czech at Columbia University, I was very blessed because I didn't realize it at the time. I, I stayed to do my PhD at Columbia because I had been the teaching assistant for Kenneth Frampton when I was a master's student. He was running the PhD program and he, he invited me to continue. And so I never really thought to go anywhere else. Just happened that Columbia had a wonderful group of students and professors in Czech studies. And when I signed up for Czech language, I, I met this great group of people associated with the Herman Institute. Oh, yeah. And um, including Brad Abrams, who is a historian of post-war Czechoslovakia, who at that time was teaching in the history department. I think I and, know him. I think I know him because I, I, I spent a year at the Harriman Institute. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Brad, Brad really is instrumental in this story because I arrived uh, to him one day, the first day of class, and I explained who I was, that I had just signed up for first-year Czech. I was an architectural historian, and I was going to write about the avant-garde in Czechoslovakia, what mm -hmm. I thought I was going to do. And he said, great, uh, don't take my undergraduate class, take my graduate seminar. And that semester just happened to be in, about the intellectual history of communism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was immersed immediately in these wonderful new books written by all of the historians who had spent the 1990s in the archives. This was... Um, let's see, the seminar was in the fall of 1999, and <clears throat> so there was this whole new crop of people doing new research, and as soon as I started to look at these books and, and be uh, inside the conversation about, you know, rethinking our, the way that we perceive what happened during communism, I was hooked, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't take me very long to decide that the avant-garde was a kind of uh, easy story to tell. And the story about communism was going to be a more difficult story to tell, and I wanted the challenge. And <clears throat> I was aided in this by a flood <laughs> uh, because I uh, arrived. I'm not sure anyone else has ever said that <laughs> sentence. I was aided in this by a flood. Yes, uh, <laughs> I arrived to Prague in uh, the early weeks of September 2002 on a Fulbright grant. And uh, in August 2002, Prague had been flooded, the famous floods um, that, you know, were on CNN because there was a drowning elephant in the zoo mm. and everyone was very upset about the whole situation. But for me, the great tragedy was that the architectural archive of the National Technical Museum was 90% underwater and is still not fully open to the public. And... All the material that I thought I was going to use to write about communism and housing, which I planned to track really from the interwar period to the postwar period, um, because I figured that I needed to have the avant-garde in there somehow because that was what was going to hook people on the topic. But when I got there, I could not get to any of this hmm. material. 
And, you know, the city even was still, the, tr- the subways weren't running, the trams were on a different schedule. It was really a kind of wrecked city when I first arrived. And it, it recovered slowly over the course of the year. But um, I had a very, um, say, a serendipitous encounter with um, actually a, a guy that I haven't talked to in years and years, but I have to thank him. His name is Niels Schultz, who was also a PhD student at Columbia working on a Czech topic. He was in Prague, and he picked me up at the airport, and he told me that the first thing that I should do is go to the National Archive. The National Archive had just built a new building way out on the edge of the city in one of the Panalak districts, so it was not impacted by the flood at all. Mm -hmm. And he told me, just see what they have. You know, maybe they'll have some stuff about housing. And so I went the next week and discovered the the trove of archival documents that Mm -hmm. allowed me to write this book. And I just never looked back. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of the nature of of the archives, the the housing documentation on the post-war period is really extensive. Uh, Communists loved uh, documents. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had incredible amounts of material, probably another three books worth are somewhere in that collection. (laughs) And... um, you asked about the, the bracketing of 1945 to 1960, mm-hmm. and 1945 is the obvious choice. Um, it, it became clear to me that trying to write about the war period, if I was going to do this real archival kind of work, was going to be difficult. Not much architecture was built. People were sort of underground, not working. So I decided that, that I could think about the interwar period as a, as a kind of backstory, which is in the book. It's, it's there. But 1945 is really the starting point. And then 1960 turned out to be the end of the second five-year plan. And that's mm. how I ended up uh, using that as the, the end point. Um, and it really, it has to do with a change after that point um, in the way that the housing infrastructure in terms of administration was set up. It's also convenient in Czech history in a certain sense, because in 1961, the government declares that, that they've, they have actually reached communism mm-hmm. and they, they changed the way that they, their rhetoric changes a little bit. And the 60s is, is a wonderful, interesting topic that I'm going to be heading into soon. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that, that 1945 to 1960 made a, made a nice 15-year uh, period of time that, that starts with the end of the war and ends at the end of the second five-year plan. And, you know, as you know, and we'll probably talk about the, the real core of the book is about the period, I would say, between 48 and maybe 58 um, and uh, the the full 45 to 60 um, is a way of thinking about a block of time, but the story really, uh, the kind of important events and the kind of climaxes in the story happen inside of those brackets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Uh, I, I love your story uh, because it, it shows that uh, you pick a topic and then it fails and then the topic picks you. Yes. Which is really what almost always happens. I felt very chosen. In this yeah. Case. People feel like, you know, I, mean, I think that people that read a lot of history books think so, well, you know, they came, they, they went about, they were going to write about this and all along it's big master plan and, you know, it's, yeah, but it never is. It you never know? is. Yeah. You get into the documents and stuff. And you know, and, I think if you have that master plan and you execute it perfectly, the book is not going to be as interesting. Probably not. That's true. <laughs> I, that's, that's a very good point. So, uh, Actually, the mention of 1945 to 1960 is an interesting jumping off point because really your book begins before that. Because one of its theses, if I understand correctly, is that uh, really the kind of template for what became socialist architecture of this type uh, was 
uh, laid down <clears throat> before the war. Absolutely. Am I right about that? That's what you say? Yeah. yeah. So um, this is a kind of discussion within architectural history that um, is one that, that gets me very fired up to talk about. And uh, it does, in a bigger, broader sense, in Eastern European studies, I think everyone really understands uh, what, what I'm about to say. But in architectural history in particular, this is a big issue, which is that um, the, the standard line is that the avant-garde died in 1938. You know, when Hitler marched yeah. into Czechoslovakia, that was the end of the avant-garde, because in Europe... Czechoslovakia is well known to have had one of the richest and, and uh, most productive and interesting and diverse avant-garde scenes in, in all of Europe. And um, unlike Germany and unlike the Soviet Union, there was not a point in the early 30s when uh, modernism was kind of uh, squashed. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people, my, my mentor, Kenneth Frampton included, always use this kind of repeated trope that 1938 is when the avant-garde died. Mm -hmm. And what my book is about is my hypothesis, and I I don't think it's really radical anymore, but when I was trying to kind of formulate it, I think I felt I was making a big uh, breakthrough, which is that, in fact, what happened uh, in communist Europe, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, um, was the real fulfillment of the modern project, the way that it had been formulated by the, the left of the left in the avant-garde, mm-hmm. in other words, the, the more radical left uh, that operated with inside, uh, inside of this European avant-garde, that in fact, if we look at what they wanted and what they were saying and what they were hoping for, that what plays out after 1945 um, in, in the East um, is really what they were hoping for and what they wanted. Yeah, that's a, I, I was going to say that is what I tell people too, you know, that these people intended to build socialism before the war, and then after the war, they built it. They built it, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's uh, for, for a lot of people, especially uh, people who are really um, immersed in the history of the avant-garde in the interwar period, it's very difficult to really wrap their minds around this because they associate the avant-garde with a certain kind of aesthetic beauty. Mm-hmm. And after the war it becomes clear that if you're going to pursue this way of thinking that it's not really about aesthetic beauty and it has to do with um, production and the way that buildings are made and the infrastructure for construction and the administration of money and all of the things that I write about in the book that, you know, most architectural historians, they, they think of this as the kind of background and the architecture always has to come forward as a kind of formal operation. And when I was thinking about this topic and getting really involved with the documents, obviously, it became clear to me that that in every sense, architecture is never only about that kind of formal quality. And so anybody who's really um, sort of in love with the way that certain kinds of avant-garde architecture in Europe looks um, has to realize that the architects who were making that architecture you know, if we take them at their word, and, and we don't always have to take them at their word, but if we really think about what they wanted, that the, the beauty that we see in the architecture is the result of a, of a way of thinking about the systematic construction of buildings, mm-hmm. that uh, we, we often associate these buildings with a kind of one-off unique beauty, but that's not really what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that because of the money problems, especially with the Great Depression, often they could only build one. <laughs> So yeah. 
they would build their prototype of yeah. something that they wanted to build many of. And we now look at it as this uh, beautiful, unique villa or, you know, example. And in fact, they were hoping they would be everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, very, that's very interesting. So then is it too much to say that uh, these people in the avant-garde, or at least many of them, were in fact uh, socialists or communists themselves before the war? And they were in those socialist and communist circles. And so after the war, when, well, at least after 48 in Czechoslovakia, when the communists came to power, they simply took the, they dusted off their plans. Yeah. And in, uh, in the case of Czechoslovakia, this is true. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not true in, in all parts of Europe, certainly. Um, as I said, Czechoslovakia is unique. Uh, in, it's unique in multiple ways. The Communist Party was established legally in 1921 in Czechoslovakia, and it was never illegal. And uh, this mattered a lot in the way that, that people related to communism and to the party. The um, architects in the 1930s, for the most part, were center-left and left. Mm -hmm. And the war kind of radicalizes them in a certain way, especially the sort of center-left type. Uh, they often moved farther to the left. And they didn't even really need to dust things off because a lot of them had been um, very actively promoting some of these ideas. And uh, there's people in the book that I talk about uh, extensively, this group, um, the Architectural Working Group, um, these three guys from Prague who were young in the early 30s who were talking already in 1936 about nationalizing the building industry and making architects employees of the nationalized uh, industry. And this is exactly what they do 10 years later. Mm -hmm. But they, you know, they're really thinking about it. It's, it's a project of theirs. It's, it's a proposal. They're working towards it. The war intervenes, but I don't think that they would have uh, thought necessarily about themselves making a big change. I think mm -hmm. at the beginning they really felt that this was the opportunity for them to implement something that had seemed very utopian to many people in mm -hmm. the 30s. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in another interview, I think it was with Stephen Kotkin or somebody like that, um, he explained, and this was a reference to Poland, he said, you know, the best way to build communism is with communists. Right. <laughs> and, and in fact, that's what there were, a lot of them. And yeah. so this notion we had that somehow it was foisted upon them, um, you know, en masse by the Soviets, just isn't really correct. It couldn't have survived yeah. if that were the case. So, And it is certainly very understandable that these people would move further to the left under the Nazis. I mean, I, I would move further to the left under the Nazis. I, you know, it's it, it, horrible thing. So right. it makes perfect sense. Let's talk a little bit about the buildings themselves. I think okay. most Americans will know a little bit about, uh, or most of our listening audience will know a little bit about architectural history. Um, and, uh, and, they, and they may have seen one of these buildings. They're kind of boxy. Uh, they they yeah. look, look a little bit prefab. Sometimes they don't. They, they have sparse ornamentation. Where, where do these sorts of buildings come from, architecturally speaking? So um, what I say in the book, or what I try to argue, and, and uh, people can make their own decision about how well I do it, is that, in fact, these buildings are the same idea of architecture that was around in the avant-garde in the 30s, this idea of unornamented, box-like architecture that really emphasized uh, function as its primary objective. So uh, making, particularly we're talking mostly about housing, because that's what this yeah. uh, book is about, particularly issues of sunshine, so light coming into the apartment, airflow, so having windows on at least two facades, 
Um, having uh, ventilation for the kitchen and um, the bathrooms often were in the interior so that the living spaces could have the windows at the edges. And these kind of floor plans are really um, typical for the kind of minimum dwelling conversation and the idea of functional, efficient mass housing in the 1930s. And what happens after the war is that the actual production method of making the buildings changes. So I argue that, in fact, the, the kind of architectural space, the kind of uh, architectural intentions are, in fact, very similar. Mm -hmm. They're just making the building in a different way. Mm -hmm. And what, what are the differences between those two? I mean, one thing that occurs to me is when you see uh, what's in New York, for example, there are these buildings. You see a pre-war building. Everybody wants to live in a pre-war building. Right. They're made of brick. Right. Yeah. Um, it, 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 how are how are these uh, these? Um, well, I know the answer to this question because they're called panel houses. Uh, right. How are they made? Yeah. So a typical uh, old building, older building, was made with masonry wall construction, which is considered to be kind of solid construction. And a panelock, which is the Czech name for these prefabricated panelized buildings, they're actually made um, all the surfaces of the building, the floors, the ceilings, the walls, they're all prefabricated panels that are made with reinforced rebar steel inside the panel. Mm -hmm. And the buildings, the ones that eventually get made in the later part of the 1950s, and then from that point on, the majority of buildings, at least in Czechoslovakia, um, are made with these prefabricated panels, and they're all hooked together, and they have no structural skeleton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, this is a, a real different way of thinking about putting a building together, but it's an idea that, that uh, you can find examples of this attempts at this kind of construction all the way back in the 1920s in Germany. Uh, there were also building engineers in France who were working on this technology and in Scandinavia. So it's not just a, a communist thing. It's really, um, as I said before, you see ideas that were circulating more widely be implemented on a very big scale. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one thing I don't think anyone has ever written a history of rebar, uh, but I think someone <laughs> should because uh, it's my understanding that in the 1930s it was a pretty new technology, and that that actually the socialist states adopted it. Well, the Soviet Union adopted it very quickly. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you know, I have to say I don't know because no one's ever written the history. Of the reason I know that I should say the reason I know this is that many of the buildings in Stalingrad, you see these famous cityscapes of Stalingrad during the war. Those buildings were built out of. Uh, uh, reinforced concrete. And that was very uh -huh. unusual. They didn't uh -huh. build buildings like that in the United States, at least as far as I know they didn't. Yeah, um, well, what I know about it is that a lot of the avant-garde architects like Le Corbusier and Walter Gropius, they were very interested in reinforced concrete construction. And they're already using it in the teens. Even yeah, uh, Walter Gropius is even using it before uh, 1914. And it's in its infancy. And the problem with it that the problem with their techniques is that they didn't quite understand how to keep the water away from the rebar. Uh. And when water gets inside and the rebar rebar rusts, yeah. it creates incredible problems and it actually cracks the concrete. That's not good. And so, for example, the Tugendhat house, where I started my story a while ago, um, recently went through a multi-million dollar renovation. I think it was something like five million U.S. dollars um, to renovate, particularly because the reinforced concrete base of the house had completely mm -hmm. cracked. Mm -hmm. 
and it had to be totally rebuilt. Mm -hmm. So reinforced concrete was around for a while. I think it was actually invented and, and in use in America for industrial technology, yeah, that might not be. for housing, yeah. but for factory buildings and stuff in the late 19th century. And in the early 20th century, it, it sort of moves into smaller scale construction like residential construction. Um, Le Corbusier is a big proponent of reinforced concrete. Hmm. Um, the, the famous early reinforced concrete architect is actually French. His name is Auguste Perret. And he also, uh, he's he's doing reinforced concrete 1904, 1905. Really? Oh, well, well oh, that makes me wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm always happy to be uh, wrong. But, but what was happening is they, they weren't really good at it. And so buildings were falling apart. Uh -huh. Frank Lloyd Wright had the same problem. He was working with it. And it, nowadays his buildings are falling apart. So what the communists were able to do was, in a sense, particularly in Czechoslovakia, because of things that I write about in the book, like the advanced building industry, the, the, um, the fact that in the 1920s and 1930s, Czechoslovakia was a very um, wealthy and uh, prosperous country with a, incredible technological capacities. They basically worked to perfect the technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, reinforced concrete is not so typical for... Um, for individual houses, for example, uh, especially in the United States. But it, it was becoming quite typical uh, for apartment buildings and everything um, that, that is on a larger scale. Yeah. And, uh, the pan but the panel construction technology is different because everything is made uh, in the factory mm -hmm. and right. then brought to the site. To Most um, most reinforced concrete is done on site where you pour the liquid yep. concrete into the form on the site. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure everybody has seen that. I mean, yes. you, see, you see that you see the molds that they build out of wood and yeah. then they do it. Yeah. That, that's interesting. I, I was going to say, um, you know, it, a, an easy way to kind of imagine these, since we don't have pictures in radio to imagine yes. these houses is it, imagine a house that's made by Ikea. And I think you get some, <laughs> you get some sense of what these things are, are like. They really it was it, they were incredibly efficient in terms of of of, um, of building, isn't that right? In terms of material and construction and that kind of stuff, you really didn't need to be a terribly skilled craftsman to put one of these things up. Right. They were they had uh, cranes and they had uh, lots of machines that helped. And then the guys on the site they didn't have to be that right. uh, technologically uh, skilled, but they did have to do welding mm -hmm. and other kind of work on the site, mm -hmm. but very few of them. I mean, if you look at the building sites for the later Panelaks, um, there's a few pictures of the, of these, um, these sites in the later fifties in the book, you don't see many people, you see large machines. Mm -hmm. And of course this, this was to their advantage in a, as you know, economies that had constant labor shortages. Yeah. Yeah, that's and right. so it, it made sense uh, in that way, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's what's you know that's that was Marx's dream and Lenin's dream. Machines would do it all. Yeah, you wouldn't even worry about it. You know, <laughs> hunt and fish in the morning, and I can't remember the rest of it. Uh, so th these these buildings were built in prodigious numbers, correct? Yes. Yeah, I mean they 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 they, they went from zero to a hundred really fast. Yeah. Well. I, I don't know. The, the, it's a relative question, right? I mean, how fast is fast? Because the first Panelops that I find built in Czechoslovakia are finished in 1954. And uh, the first ones that I know about in France are built a few years earlier. And uh, in Czechoslovakia by 1960, 17% of new construction is with panel buildings. Uh-huh. Um, fully, fully structural panel buildings. There are, um, as I say in the book, there's actually 
several different kinds of construction that utilize panels. Mm -hmm. And the dream was to make everything structural panels. But in the, in the meantime, and actually continuing through till the 1990s, they did have hybrid systems of panelized facades with um, skeleton construction, which mm -hmm. gives you a much more flexible floor plan and gives you flexibility in materials in a way that a Pontelock doesn't. Mm -hmm. But by the mid-60s, maybe the late 60s, a huge majority of construction in Czechoslovakia is done with panelaki, structural yeah. panel buildings. Mm -hmm. So yeah, within 10 years, let's say, yeah. they right. ramp up very, very quickly. Right. But you know, it involved an, a massive enterprise to get this going. They had to build dozens of panel factories all across the country. Mm -hmm. And they had to uh, figure out how to transport the panels to the places where they were needed. Mm -hmm. Because um, at a certain point, from an economic perspective, having these big prefabricated heavy panels that are um, then brought to the site, it starts to not make sense because of the cost of transportation. Mm -hmm. And so I found maps that show the distribution of the panel factories across the whole country. And they tried to put them, you know, in Ostrava, in Brno, in Kladno, in the places where they were building the biggest amounts of housing, mm -hmm. because that that minimized the distance. Yeah. But as, as people who have been to Eastern Europe know, there's panelaks everywhere. There are. Yes. So inevitably, they were transporting. So they had to, to think about this mathematics of how far do you want to to bring the panel. Mm -hmm. Mostly in Czechoslovakia, it was on train lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I was going to say, that's probably the easiest way to do it. I'm sure that's yeah. the easiest way to do it, is to build a yeah. railroad spur. Um, yes. Let's talk a little bit about ideology here, because um, there is a kind of conscious ideology. There is an intent. What, what were they trying to do with these modern panel buildings? What was the goal, sort of deeper human goal? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I try to give them quite a lot of credit for this in a human sense. And I think the goal was to house as many people in modern apartments as possible, as quickly and cheaply and efficiently as they could, but to a minimum standard. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important to say that uh, each of the countries that are you know part of the block have a slightly different history of prefabricated construction when you think about the quality of the product. And I have the feeling from my research, and I, I can't say I've traveled extensively um, farther to the east, so it's not firsthand knowledge, but it seems to me that the panel buildings in Czechoslovakia are probably of the highest quality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And most of them, some huge number... 90 plus percent of them are still inhabited just the way that they were. Mm -hmm. They've been, you know, renovated, but the housing infrastructure is incredibly um, stable and uh, long-term. It seems like it's going to exist just the way that it is. Mm -hmm. So from an ideological perspective, this really was a, a social project to provide housing for people who didn't have housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, I was going to say, we just to, uh, to, to make clear, I'll step back into my pre-travel uh, to the Eastern Bloc self and, and say that um, what we're talking about here in terms of modern housing is running water and toilets in so, in, indoor, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> in, that, this is where Czechoslovakia is quite different from the Soviet Union. Because uh -huh. uh, it's a little bit better than that. It's central heating. It's one, you know, it's uh, a bathroom with a bathtub and a sink, and it's it's not primitive living by mm -hmm. any means. 
Um, Czechoslovakia had a housing shortage uh, always, especially in Prague and bigger cities. And in the 30s, it, it gets um, exacerbated by the Great Depression. They have a problem that a huge amount of the housing stock was constructed in the late, not mid and late 19th century in the industrial boom. And it's starting to crumble and not be so inhabitable. You have families in basements and, and all the typical Depression-era stories. Mm -hmm. But in post-war Czechoslovakia, these new apartments were really considered to be quite comfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't just running water and electricity, but it really was a kind of modern infrastructure. I mean, the most people had televisions and washing machines by the, the late 60s mm -hmm. and 70s. Um, and the apartments are small by American standards. Mm -hmm. But in other terms, they were very, very similar to what the, the kind of cookie cutter American suburban house was going to give you mm -hmm. at the beginning. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a divergence, but if you look at what was happening in Levittown, New York in 1955, and you look at what was happening in Prague or Ostrava or Zlin or Brno in 1955, you see people moving into small but functional, kind of simple middle-class living that's designed to bring up your kids, family kind of life. And uh, I'm, the, more I, the more I've been researching this and thinking about it, the more I start to see a kind of mirroring to what was happening in, the, in 1950s America with the boom of these box suburbs, mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. tiny little houses um, mm -hmm. everywhere. In Czechoslovakia, they were stacking them and yeah. apartment buildings. But what you were getting was not bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did people like them? Yes. Yeah, I bet they people did. People like them, and they still do. Yeah, no, I bet they <laughs> and, do. And when I was recently in the Czech Republic, we lived in a building that was actually built in, in the early 1950s. Um, it was beautiful. The building had a beautiful lobby, and it, it was really uh, well-built and solid construction. It had been renovated recently. We had a new kitchen, and uh, it was as good an apartment as you can ever want, really. Now, that was a strange thing I noticed in the Soviet Union when I first went there, is they didn't build lobbies. Like you, you, yeah. you walk in the door and you're confronted by an elevator and a staircase. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and the Dejournaya, who was you know like cleaning up or something with a homemade well, this, broom. That, that gets to the issue of efficiency because uh, what happens is that um, as the, the and this is part of the longer story, as the economies in these countries from the 1950s moving forward, especially in Czechoslovakia and the Eastern Bloc, where they had been relatively prosperous in the inchwar period. They come out of the war and they're told that, that socialism is going to, to continue their kind of prosperity just with a different distribution mm -hmm. of prosperity. When the economy starts to go sour, when they start to have problems with labor shortages, problems of supply and demand, problems of resources, because of course, uh, you know, you can't get everything you need within the communist boundaries. Mm -mm. And so there's, there's all these kinds of problems. Once that starts to happen, then the architecture starts to be economized, made, made efficient, uh, reduced, um, kind of um, disembodied, let's say, from these original idealists of the 40s and the 50s who thought that what they were doing was, in a sense, maximizing. Mm -hmm. you know, what, what, is a, what is the perfect apartment for, for parents and two children? What, what size apartment? What do they need? Uh, let's give it to them. You know, a kind of uh, minimum high-quality standard. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the economics really go, 
which happens relatively quickly in Czechoslovakia. I think it's around the early 60s, maybe 1960, 61, when you have negative growth in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, then start things start to get difficult. And people, you know, the, the bureaucrats start saying, why do we need a lobby? What's a lobby for? Right. Let's add another apartment you know, space yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it's true. You, you, you start to see the buildings get leaner, the, the, the hallways get smaller, the ceilings get lower, the proportions of the rooms get smaller. Um, and it's really, it gets bad in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I've been so, in these buildings. Yeah. It does get bad. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what, what I think many Americans, at least me, will associate with architecture, and that is ornamentation. Uh-huh. They, 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 I th- they were originally planned to be sort of completely unornamented. Is that right? Yes. And then, But later there were sort of things where they crept in. There were elements, what we call elements, kind of crept in. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the confines of my book, we can just take those 15 years in particular because the story sort of changes later on. At the beginning, they adopt a kind of aesthetic of the avant-garde of the interwar period. And this aesthetic was about a lack of ornamentation. Right. And uh, this is something that, you know, when we look at the architecture of the 1920s in particular, we think is beautiful. These kind of white boxes Mm -hmm. with these big glass windows. Well, that kind of aesthetic gets picked up after the war. And uh, especially in Czechoslovakia, the architects are very protective of this great history of modernism. And so they want their buildings to have that same kind of look. But things start to creep in. For example, uh, in the late 1940s, there's pressure to make the buildings more comfortable for people, especially people moving from the countryside or moving from single-family houses into the cities where they're getting jobs in industry and, and they're, they're moving to more urban settings. So they put pitched roofs on the houses, on the apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that starts to change the way they look. The, the avant-garde aesthetic, the sort of modern aesthetic, is a flat roof. Yep. And so when you start to see the pitched roofs, even that, even though from an architectural perspective, it's a better quality construction in a cold, snowy climate, um, they still, they look to us a little bit more what we in architecture state is vernacular derived mm-hmm. from sort of local architecture. Mm-hmm. And um, then we also uh, see starting around 1950 is what, what I say in the book, some pressure, political pressure coming from the central administration coming through architects aligned with the central administration, like Yerji Kroha, who I write about in the book. And, you know, in a certain sense, coming directly from Moscow, although you don't find a kind of directive the way that people might expect, like Moscow calling Prague and saying, get your architects <laughs> to uh, yeah. do what we want. But you start to see socialist realism, <laughs> which is, you know, the famous uh, Russian style of the 1930s. It it, uh, makes its appearance in Eastern Europe. It takes a little while. The architects are resistant. But by late 49, early 1950, you start to see a transition happening where the architects are putting these decorations, these socialist realist decorations on the buildings. Mm -hmm. And I can say more about that. I don't know how in detail you want me to go about it. But uh, there's two chapters in the book that deal specifically with the issue of socialist realism. And what I say is that, interestingly, something I wasn't, wasn't expecting to find, but now that you know, I see the whole picture, is the obvious situation. Industrially produced, standardized buildings that are built to a, a set of um, plans that everybody uses all around the country. Mm-hmm. 
are then decorated yeah. with um, added on pieces of little uh, concrete decorations that are also prefabricated and screwed onto mm -hmm. these industrially produced buildings. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not panelocks yet. There's no structural panel buildings um, until 1954. But starting in 1950, you do have um, what, what is called the typification guide. It's a book that's created from the central administration in Prague and is sent out to all the architecture offices in the regions um, that tells them the, the floor plans and the sizes of the buildings. Mm -hmm. And then they have to start putting these decorations on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know from, from what I write, I think that they were successful in many, many ways, these socialist realist buildings. And uh, one reason is that the, the urbanism of this period is more like the 1920s in Vienna, the, the, um, a kind of slightly classicized and more historical understanding of urbanism. And it's not the, the avant-garde urbanism of the 20s and the 30s where the buildings were often placed sort of in a row typical kind of German urbanism mm -hmm. where you have a building and then a little bit of, of grass and then another building, sort of parallel lines. In fact, during the socialist realist period, not only are they adding decoration, but they're taking these standard buildings and they're arranging them around courtyard spaces. Mm -hmm. And this is also something that uh, is nowadays you look at it and you think about it as being a formal strategy a kind of ornamentation it's, it's not it's urbanism so it's not ornamentation but it creates picturesque situations for the buildings you know walking through a mm -hmm. pathway under the building through through a little um corridor that's there in the building and coming into a beautiful courtyard with trees and flowers that um, people there's playground equipment and people sit on benches and you know just that is a kind of aesthetic quality to the buildings mm -hmm. that was lacking um, in the previous period and again starts to, to change after uh, the 1950s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I was thinking about uh, something that was pointed out to me by a, a Russian friend that took me on a little architectural tour, and he showed me buildings that were built in the 20s, and they are totally unornamented, and then uh -huh. he showed me buildings that were built um, usually in, in the late 1930s or in the post-war period, and he noted all the classical elements, arches. Yes. Yeah, these, these the, you know, the, your Mies van der Rosen, so they did not build arches in their buildings uh, or balustrades. Um, right. Or, you know, a, 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 um, even a certain kind of ornamented um uh, I want to call it a porch, but I don't, I mean, that's probably an American term. Uh, but, um, you know, things like well, this. The, uh, these are all the elements of socialist realism that are adapted from classical architecture. Yeah. They and, love columns, faux, faux columns and stuff. Yep, pilasters yeah. and columns yeah, exactly, and yeah. cornices and porticos and sculptures. And yes, and particularly in the Soviet case, because there's a, there's a big scale difference, I think, between what was built in Czechoslovakia and what was built in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, the Soviet stuff was just bigger. Yeah. And so the arches are bigger, everything is bigger, and the, the ornamentation is even more uh, elaborate, I would say. Especially in the sort of, uh, I don't, I, it sounds strange to say, but that the sort of high point of socialist realism in the Soviet Union in the late 30s, when Stalin is putting lots of money into mm -hmm. these incredibly ornamented buildings, mm -hmm. um, those buildings don't that to that quality or that size, that scale, they don't really exist so much in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. 
because the Eastern European socialist realism happened in the context of, you know, post-war austerity and mm-hmm. post-war shortage. And it also, in the case of Czechoslovakia, the architects who are, were all trained in a modernist idiom mm-hmm. were somewhat resistant. Yeah, no, I imagine they were. And so it's not quite as opulent. You have a few examples And you also discover, this is something that architectural historians know well, that uh, a lot of modernists, even though the exteriors of their buildings were these kind of white boxes, they were very, very um, attentive to materials and to to details. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a kind of blank box, but you'll go inside and you'll find travertine and marble, beautiful metal uh, banisters and railings and beautiful doorknobs and all of these kind of uh, what we would think of as luxurious uh, things are inside of these kind of white boxes. Mm-hmm. And so you you do find that in Czechoslovak socialist realism, um, an interest in high quality materials, uh, in subtle colors, um, beautiful marble, um, often I find when I go into these buildings, um, the building that we lived in that was built in the early 50s had glass block uh, walls. Oh, that's so on cool. the size of the stairways. <laughs> yeah, that's um, cool. And they had big light wells, two light wells in the center of the building. And in fact, the building was built by uh, one of the great Prague avant-garde architects, Josef Havlicek. Mm-hmm. But at that time, he was working, he was head of design at the State Design Institute in Prague. So this was a kind of premier building. And his, the decorative qualities of the buildings on the, on the exterior, the one we lived in, was very abstract. Mm-hmm. And that was very modern compared to, you know, down the street from us, some of the buildings had very, very, um, what I call fussy details, like kind of classical looking things. And also uh, more realistic depictions of people and animals and flowers and stuff on the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you can, even within socialist realism, you can see a range from people who look like they were copying the 19th century or the 16th century to modernists who are trying to kind of interpret socialist realism as bringing a kind of luxuriousness to the masses, mm-hmm. which is something that I talk about in the book that we, we can't only think about socialist realism as this kind of degenerate Stalinist preference for old things. But in fact, it was an idea about uh, giving the working class a kind of opulent, luxurious architecture that had typically been reserved for the upper classes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's something that, that the Soviets and communists throughout Eastern Europe said, that socialism was about prosperity. They exactly. were going to make people wealthy and they yes. were going to give them good living conditions. That yeah. was their bargain. They're saying, we're going to get you, you do this for us and we'll do this for you. Yes. Now, how, how it turned out in various places differs, yes. uh, but that was the deal. And that's what people expected, which I think yeah. goes and, some way in explaining why the whole thing collapsed. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I just came back from Osterva last, I was in Osterva last semester, well, last fall. I didn't just come back a few months ago. And Osterva is a steel mining and coal producing, coal, uh, steel mills, coal mines mm-hmm. in the city. And that was a place where the communists uh, kind of bargain of work hard and we'll give you something for it. It worked. I mean, Ostero was a prosperous middle class town. Um, and, you know, you had the bosses from the mill living next to the guys who worked in the mill mm-hmm. in these apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And they had ways of gaining perks, as you know. Yeah. Automobiles, access to automobiles, holi- you know, summer holidays, uh, cabins. Um, access to special restaurants or special stores. 
But in terms of the actual living situation, you mostly had the, the upper managers living in similar conditions to everybody else. Yep, yep. You know, the communists were big levelers and they leveled. I mean, and also you should say, that, I mean, there's a lot of talk about this when people criticize the communist project about perks and stuff, but the perks weren't very perky. <laughs> I mean, American, I, when I was there, I was like, I couldn't really tell the difference between, you know, somebody who was a high party official and somebody who worked in you know, a steel mill. I, right. I'm sure they could tell, but I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, their high level guys didn't quite look like our high level No, guys. no, no, there's no, no, there's no, no, no comparison. There's no Donald, there's no Donald Trump, I think. In the, actually, I was just reading an article that my father found in the Wall Street Journal about the Czech Republic and they're now doing tours. Somebody set up a company that will tour around you can see the houses of the oligarchs. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, and I, I, they're quite upset about this in the Czech Republic. They didn't seem to really know that when you want to love commun- uh, capitalism, yeah, that it produces these very, very ultra-wealthy people. Yeah, yeah. And a... Uh, it's a bit shocking to them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, you, know, you, take a, you know, take a tour of the oligarchs in Eastern Europe, you take a tour of Hollywood stars' houses in Hollywood. I don't know, this kind of thing, sort of voyeurism, sort of interesting in a way, but you're right. right. But I mean, I think your main point is a good one, and that is they were all about leveling, and they did level. They did level. And they so believed that, in the project. The ideology, you asked earlier about, you know, what's the ideology of this housing? Well, this housing was the, I really think of it as the primary vehicle for the leveling. Yeah. yeah. Because um, when we think about what, what really matters to us in life and what we work for, housing is a huge issue. Um, to anybody, capitalist, communist, or anything. And the fact that the Eastern Europeans were able to provide so much housing at this minimum high-quality standard to so many people is really extraordinary when you think about what was happening at the same time in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, you know, we think of the United States in the 50s and the 60s as being very prosperous, kind of post-war boom time, baby boomers and everything. But if you think about what's happened to the populations in the inner cities, this was not boom time. This yeah. was not good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, typically, as we all know, in capitalism, some people win out and some people don't. And in the communist situation, you could... Some people would say nobody won because everyone ended up with, you know, small apartments and bad clothes and and not enough uh, perks. But at a certain point, when you think about the fundamentals, um, I really think they succeeded in many ways. Mm -hmm. No, I, you know, they built a lot of housing units and they housed a lot of people. There is no question about this. Yeah. That is beyond uh, any dispute, I think. So um, let me, I'm hoping you can make one thing clear we're going to come you know i want to come back to it and that is this notion that somehow the soviets foisted this upon the czechs and the poles and everyone else um that's not really true is it no so uh i think one of the big highlights of my book and the the point that i make very strongly that hasn't come up yet is that i can trace the panel building the structural panel building to a very specific origin point in czechoslovakia and that is the work of the Bacha Shoe Company, which uh, some people may uh, know who they are. I don't. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I do from your book, but go ahead. Yeah. So the Bacha Shoe Company is one of the biggest shoe companies in the world, and it has been since the 1930s. It operates in dozens and dozens of countries. And it was started from a small town in Moravia in the eastern part of what's now the Czech Republic. <clears throat> in, in Czechoslovakia, it was actually started when it was still Habsburg territory. Mm-hmm. And this was a shoe company that that uh, took up mass production 
for shoes. And it also was a company that built company towns for its workers. Uh, and it's, it's sort of uh, its headquarters and its showcase is called Zlin uh, in Moravia. And in Zlin, in the World War II, there were architects working for the Bacia company who were continuing research that had already started in the 1930s within the company to try to create uh, mechanisms for building their company towns efficiently faster through prefabrication. Mm-hmm. And these architects, these there's two of them who I have found in the archives and, and who are were known in the architectural press, um, Bohemir Kula and Hinek Adamitz, I'll give them their, their due. These guys were researching as early as 1940 prefabricated housing for the Bacha Shoe Company. Mm. And in fact, they... Uh, when the Bacha Shoe Company becomes nationalized, it's a very large company. It's part of the first wave of nationalization uh, in 1946. When the company becomes nationalized, these two architects now suddenly work for the state. And uh, to sort of shorten the whole history here, they eventually are the origin point. The two of them, these former Bacha architects, are the originators of the Panalok technology in Czechoslovakia. And the, the line of research is there. It's very clear. You mm-hmm. can follow it. There's no way to dispute my argument in this particular case. And the kind of buildings that they make are called um, G houses and um, G buildings. And they name them G because they are in a town that was lean but is now after 1949 um, is called Gottwaldov. Uh, to honor the first uh, president and leader of the Communist Party, uh, Clement Gottwald. Mm-hmm. And so the G House, the G building, is um, named after Gottwald, and, uh, or named after Gottwaldov, which is named after Gottwald. And these G houses are the primary panelok in Czechoslovakia until the end of communism. Hmm. Other systems come into play, especially in the 70s and the 80s, you find there's new systems with new new names. But the G-House is the first Pontalock, hmm. and it's the one that was built uh, the most. And so as far as the Soviets go, from what I can tell, they were simultaneously going after the same technology. Mm-hmm. They had researchers who were trying to make prefabricated buildings, They had uh, researchers who were coming and looking at the Czechoslovak examples. The East Germans were coming and looking, the Bulgarians, the Hungarians. Everyone was was, uh, doing these research excursions to go see the Czechoslovak Ponolocks. They had their own versions of of other systems. The Soviets were uh, had had seemed to have mastered some kind of hybrid system of large block construction and prefabricated skeletons, but they didn't quite get the panelok, the true structural hmm. panel building, right. Hmm. And um, as I say in the book, and it's something that needs a lot more research. And I don't I don't read or speak Russian, so I can't do the Russian end of this um, yet. Maybe in the future, but. Um, what I understand from, from uh, the research and talking to people is that the Soviets eventually purchased technology from France that they then uh, used to build 40 million panel buildings. Hmm, yeah, that is a good topic. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good topic. Well, I, I hate to say it, but our time is almost up, and we certainly okay. have taken up a lot of your time. That's true. This has been fascinating. Um, Kimberly, maybe you could conclude the interview by telling us uh, what you are working on next. Okay, so uh, my next project is actually focused on a particular city called Ostrava. 
And I was just in Ostrava from August to January doing this project. Mm. And the new research that I'm doing is to look at the development of Ostrava from probably 1955 when Ostrava did a big master plan. Look at the development of the city until 2011, 2012, or whenever I mm -hmm. finish the book. And to really uh, think about what the socialist city is in the post-socialist and in EU context mm -hmm. yeah, because yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Ostrava is getting a ton of money from the EU. It's one of the, the um, let's say it's a best case scenario for the EU. It's a large city. It has 310,000 people, but it's not a capital. It has huge uh, industrial knowledge, kind of knowledge base, still has steel mills operating there, and they are throwing money at Ostrava. And what I'm trying to understand is how the city developed. It, it grew by 200% in the communist period. It's an old city, medieval core, but it grew uh, enormously after 1945. And it hasn't lost a lot of its population, and it hasn't turned into a slum. And the, the uh, idea after 89 was that once all the industries in Ostrava, all the coal mines and steel mills and factories, they were going to inevitably have to shut down because of competition. And everyone thought that this was going to mean that Ostrava was going to just wither. Mm -hmm. And what has happened, in fact, is Ostrava has reinvented itself. It took, it was a hard 10 years, but, but 10 years after 89, it had managed to kind of dig itself out a little bit. Um, unemployment went up into the range of about 24% at one point. Mm -hmm. But in 2008, it was back down to 8%. It's since climbed to up to about 11, but uh, it has somehow survived. And I am writing the history of this place, and I am really uh, excited about it. It allows me to take the research from the first book and kind of continue it in a very particular context. And hopefully that book will be uh, coming out in a few years. Well, you sound really excited. I am. I like that very much. <laughs> well, I was very excited to talk to you today, and I'm glad we finally got it working. Uh, many people who are listening think that this came off seamlessly, but it did <laughs> not. There were some yeah. technical problems on my end, but I'm happy to say that I was going to say I cleared them up, but they just kind of cleared up. I, I can't <laughs> well, really explain I, what I happened. I appreciate you uh, finding me. Uh, uh, you are a former fellow Iowan. That's true, yeah. Well, I may be back to Iowa. You could never tell. You always come back to Iowa. At least that's the way <laughs> I feel about it. I've, I've left Iowa at least once before and came back. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn toward the place. Let's put it that yeah. way. Anyway, Kimberly, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Kimberly Zarekor about her book, Manufacturing a Socialist Modernity, Housing in Czechoslovakia, 1945-1960. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>